Giving us a five-star review is the equivalent of swiping right on the Son of a Pitch podcast on Tinder. So if you like the sexy, dulcet tones of Max and Vince in your ear holes, you know what to do. Give us a five-star review and a little sexy comment. Cheers. Yeah, uh, son of a pitch. Yeah, this is something you don't want to miss. Uh-huh. Interviews with creatives and the best strategists. All the top in Australia who steady making moves. Uh-huh. The podcast that puts you right in the pitch room. Yeah, professionals in this market. Uh, time to get it started. Uh, give us some complex problems, so let's see how you can solve it. Tune in with some Aussies. I bet you can't resist. Yeah, yeah, get it hyped. This is son of a pitch. Dylan, you son of a pitch. You are listening to Son of a Pitch Podcast with your hosts, Max Learmont and Vince Usher. And we thought it might be a good idea to go around and interview other strategists in the field who, who know more things than we do. Most, most of them are pretty silly. I hope you enjoy. Here we go. John Halpern, welcome to the Son of a Pitch Podcast. Nice to be here. For the second time. <laughs> are we going to explain? We, we may as well explain. All right. So we had John on originally. And you're our second episode, and, and we fucked up pretty badly, I think, for the, it's fair to say. We did, yes. Yeah. So, it turns out that audio engineering is a lot harder than you would uh, believe at the start, uh, and we learned from these mistakes. So, here we are back yeah. again with John well, um, to ask the same questions again, but better. Yeah, and with the record button this time. And with the record button this time. This yes. is the only, the fourth fuck up in uh, the Son of a Pitch podcast history. It is, it is. We have lost some episodes, <laughs> so, uh, but it's all about our growth, right, Max? The hidden archives. The hidden um, archives. Yeah, uh, yeah, no. <laughs> whatever, whatever helps to sleep at night, Vince. John, the first time we had you on the podcast, we asked you about where you started and you told us a brilliant story about a little agency that had something to do with a deck chair. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I, um, I had no idea how to get into the advertising industry um, when I sort of came out of uni. And um, uh, I was looking in the classifieds because that's where you look for jobs back then. Uh, <laughs> the yellow and, pages, yep. <laughs> uh, and um, there was a job for a production manager for a little agency in Auckland called Christensen Dobbs. Um, and so I applied having absolutely no idea what a production manager was, um, but it was a job in advertising it was in the paper, so I figured I'd better have a crack. Uh, and um, uh, I didn't really have anything substantial to put on my CV, <laughs> um, so uh, I thought I'd better try and make something else of my CV in order to, um, to get their attention. So they... Their company logo um, and lockup was a deck chair, and it said the surprising little agency. Strong logo. Yeah, it is <laughs> laid back, just like the New Zealanders themselves. As a nice, there was actually a little beach in the office. Um, the um, and so what I did was I um, I constructed a little sort of one foot. Um, balsa wood deck chair and um and then strung my uh cv in the middle of the deck chair um in order to um yeah to try and make up for the complete lack of any skills or experience did you have some woodworking skills um uh i i had observed my dad in in the um tool shed you know and that was about it so um you know, uh, just mashed something together and uh, dropped it off and they gave me a call and um, 
were kind enough to sort of go, we'll, we'll take you on and um, we don't have a job for you and you're certainly not going to be our production manager. But um, <laughs> Not we'll, with working skills like that. <laughs> yeah, we'll see if we can find you a job somewhere else. So, did did um, the deck chair was, at least get some use in the agency? Uh, it, it was balsa wood, so uh, no, it wasn't, wasn't really that useful. <laughs> <laughs> Just like many people in agencies these days. Oh, me included. No, uh, but anyway, so <laughs> just going on from that, uh, a lot of people, like a, a lot of young people these days, you know, we, we've been labeled as this entitled generation where we feel like we can click on LinkedIn and flick through our resume and someone will look at it and they'll just see our genius for what it is. Do you think that's a big shame? Did you, like, obviously you had to go to the extra mile back in the day. Um, would you recommend that technique now? Um, I would. I would um, encourage anyone who is going through that process who's um, starting out chasing a career in advertising to think about it uh, in terms of an advertising campaign. So if if you're taking that approach, it's kind of like, cool, let's just like um, hit somebody with our um, banner ad and they'll click on it and they will come to our website and buy our stuff. Yes, which right? doesn't work in doesn't reality, really happen, does it? Right? Um, yeah. Click through rate of what? <laughs> anyway, um, so I would, but I would think about it like that. It's like you actually need to think about who your audience is and um, why they are going to be interested in um, not just reading your CV or, or um, your LinkedIn um, profile, but. Um, sufficiently motivated that they're going to want to actually contact you um, and work out how that's going to, you know, the best way to actually um, do that for them and um, and maybe you'll have some success. It's fair to say that I also tried some other tactics back in the day that were not successful. Oh, um, but, can you elaborate? Uh, you know, there used to be um, a... Uh, a uh, publication that came out in New Zealand um, that you could buy which had every agency um, and all the key people um, in the agency and their phone numbers. Oh, and, um, a little black book. It was, it was a big black book. Man. So <laughs> the, it, for me, it was like the big investment that I made was to buy this book and then just try calling people. And, um, and some people were not very happy about me just doing that. Like, and, you know, but it's like, you got to have a crack. So Yeah, they must have thought you were a telemarketer. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, yeah, I kind of had some MDs of agencies calling me back going, who the F, f are you? And like, why would I want to speak to you? And uh, yeah, I didn't have a strong answer for that. <laughs> no, yeah. you didn't have a script planned? Um, uh, uh yeah, it was a little bit disappointing for them, I think. Oh, yeah. but the one thing that seems to be common amongst all your approaches is a bit of a chutzpah and uh, a go getedness You want to be in advertising, right? Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. Um, if you're going to send somebody a, a two-page CV, um, you know, of 12-font text, hmm. um, I think you need to work on that. Like, you, you know... There's a lot that you can do with regardless of what position you're in that says that you understand the industry you're in and what you need to deliver ultimately. Um, 
yeah, again, wherever you are and whatever function um, that you're looking to to do within the industry. Um, so, you know, be brave and, and try and do something that's actually going to grab their attention in the way that you need to grab consumers' attention. Yeah, has that has that philosophy aligned with your overall philosophy on strategy, grabbing attention and making big, bold statements? Um, I wouldn't say that um, it's... No, I wouldn't say that's um, my philosophy. I'd say my philosophy is understand who your consumer is yeah. and how you're going to get their attention and how you're going to motivate them to do the thing that you want them to do. And that case, you know, give you a call. Do you think advertising is a strong force for motivation and, and behavior change? or? Uh, undoubtedly, it's been doing it for a long time, um, very successfully. Um, I think the challenge with advertising at the moment is just kind of like how it needs to deal with the world that we live in and an increasing shortage of attention and the fact that we no longer have uh, the ability to really just force people to consume any advertising message. Yes. Um, with the, the, you know, with the exception of sticking a billboard on your route to work, like I can pretty much avoid um, advertising and, um, you know, and, I'm, and, and that's the general public's... Um, uh, sort of modus operandi, avoid it if at all possible. Now, this is particularly interesting because I read an article in which you said Adland is basically the plastic bottle of the business sector just because of how much waste it creates that goes unnoticed by people in the world. So... How do you stand out from all of that waste? What are the principles that make advertising interesting? Um, how do you stand? I, I think it, it goes back to, and this is like for everybody involved in this whole process, um, whether regardless of what um, uh, role, agency, um, or position as a client that they play in this, but there there's, needs to be a responsibility that's like, yeah, you need to get your brief out because you've had your budget signed off and there's an expectation that's been set with um, sales teams um, who have gone and, and you know told their retailers that this is coming. Um, <clears throat> but you need to deliver something that's worthy of being out there in the world. Um, and I think often the impetus to just deliver against a deadline um, far outweighs whether or not the thing that's going out actually should exist. Um, and so as a result, you end up with um, some pretty average, is the nicest word I can say, um, advertising um, that hasn't had a lot of thought behind it in terms of how it's constructed or who it's constructed for um, Again, why it's going to motivate them to do the thing that you want them to do and the way in which you've delivered it to them that's going to help make sure that that actually happens. Um, so, yeah, I think that's the big challenge because I still, I, and, and I am, you know, have been as guilty of this as anyone, that um, timelines and deadlines and commitments force... Um, uh, ourselves and clients and other partners into delivering stuff that we're not proud of mm. um, and that 
really doesn't have a significant impact um, on uh, their sales, which is ultimately what you're looking for. So if you know that's the measure, um, that's what we need to be holding ourselves accountable to. It's really interesting these days because there seems to be an adopted formula towards creating advertising now. You've got to do certain things to make your asset distinctive. You've got to reach everyone that has a mouth, so to speak. You've got to do all of these kind of rules of of growth and laws of growth. But a lot of the times when people miss out that chutzpah that we were talking about before or that really interesting novel you know bit of novelty that it's it's just becomes kind of trash so how do you convince marketers especially and and people who are convinced that marketing can become a science that you need that little bit of intuition that little bit of novelty and that little bit of chutzpah to kind of spice things up um yeah i I, i'm not dismissing that there is absolutely a science and approach in terms of um, uh, fundamental foundations that you need to uh, take towards the way in which you approach um, reaching and convincing enough people um, to shift their behavior. But um, to answer your question, I think that if you're having to convince somebody, they probably shouldn't be giving you the brief like you know the the idea that you're giving somebody a brief that's purely going to be a case of a functional i'm going to give you this you're going to do that and it's going to end up with like this and we're going to pump it out um it to me that feels like uh that's where that's where a robot's going to come along Mm. and take that job pretty quickly because they're going to be much more efficient at doing that and it's actually about how are you going to um, put all that um, consumer understanding and humanity into that situation that's going to allow you to make that creative leap to get to a place where I stop and I actually watch or listen or read hmm. the thing that you're giving me and go, eh, I kind of like that. Yeah. Um, maybe I'll think about that brand in the future. Um, you know, that that for me is like, the big challenge is like the more that um, we move towards a formula, the easier that's going to be replaced. Yes. Right. Yep. Now, a lot of campaigns that you've been involved with in the past have been quite controversial and have, you know, gotten some pretty good headlines, um, especially when, you were working at Naked Communications, which I'm sure most people listening to the podcast will know and understand to be one of these misfit kind of agencies um, of the past. Can you tell us a bit about uh, the Ask Richard campaign? Yeah, okay. It's, uh, it's funny that you call it a misfit agency because... Um, one of the things that we used to talk about with the people who worked there were the brilliant misfits. There you go. Right. right. So, <laughs> Living uh, up to the brand. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, Ask Richard was um, a, um, a pretty special campaign um, in that um, the 
guys from FBI came to Naked and were and, and we had a relationship with them, but they sort of said, um, we have a very serious problem. Um, you know, w- we basically need to raise um, an enormous amount of money um, in eight weeks or we are going to go out of business. Like, we can no longer function. We will not have the funds. Um, and they're sort of like, you know, roughly we need a million dollars. How did they normally get funding? Was it through donations? Normally they would do... Um, uh, their sort of consumer drives where they ask for people to sign up and be, um, uh, you know, what do I call it? Um, uh, you join the FBI, sponsor club thing, you know, contribute, donate yeah. your, yep. your 10 bucks a month. Um, <clears throat> that um, is effective to a degree, but it wasn't, there, there was no way that that was ever going to fill the hole that they were in. Um, and um, and their best efforts um, for any of those campaigns previously was was you know so far short of what they needed um, that uh, it really um, was telling in terms of I guess somebody coming in and saying to you if we don't get this money in the next two months yeah all these people are going to lose their job their opportunity yeah um their community radio station their financial situation vince is not too unlike the son of a bitch podcast (laughs) both two struggling (laughs) battling radio stations in the black this is where we ask john for a strategy to get us a million dollars so that we never have to make another podcast again right or at least make people's ears bleed yeah for season two for sure And now it's time for a break. Are you a creative soul who feels crushed by the irrepressible reality of hilarious delusion you live in every day of your life? Perhaps you know more about XL formatting than your significant other's private parts, resulting in a deep and throbbing pain emanating from your heart as you constantly ponder your sycophantic rise to the top of your organizational food chain. You may have even found yourself tapping your foot non-stop in the doctor's office as the pulsating flow of blood from your head convinces you that the work-related stress disease you read about in National Geographic one time is about to make your eyes pop from your skull atop a geyser of hot steam. Well, have I got a deal for you. Miami Ad School are offering a strategic planning boot camp that is almost sure to guarantee you a life filled with ever-changing, mind-bending creative challenges that help you make an actual difference within the world. Not only does it put you in touch with some of the world's best strategic minds, like the ones on this podcast, but you'll be investing in a chance to start your life anew. And the best thing? Given you're a loyal listener to the Son of a Pitch podcast, we'll waive your application fee so there's absolutely no risk to you whatsoever. Just email us at podcastsoap at gmail.com if you're interested. That's podcastsoap, S-O-A-P, podcastsoap at gmail.com. Now, let's get back to the good stuff. That's it. Anyway. Anyway. Yeah. So um, yeah. So that was the challenge. Was kind of like, um, how do we, um, how do we raise an enormous amount of money? Um, it was also during the GFC, um, which didn't make things any easier. Um, and so um, 
yeah, that was kind of the, the brief to us. Come and fix that. So what, what happens when you get a brief like that in the agency? What do people do? Are they like jumping for joy going, oh my God, we got a chance to do something amazing here? Or are they going, how the absolute F are we going to deliver on this thing? Uh, both of those things and, and numerous others, I think. Um, <laughs> the, uh, I think the ethos of Naked at the time, um, being in Surrey Hills, being this sort of um, little upstart, um, we really gravitated to FBI. A lot of, you know, a lot of the people in um, Naked at the time uh, were... Um, you know, passionate about their music, um, independent music. Um, uh, there was, <laughs> yeah, there's no Britney Spears on the, the, um, the no strawberry kisses. Yeah. Um, so, <laughs> um, there was a really strong connection already with the FBI brand. And, and as I said, we already had, um, a connection with them and I think uh, done some previous work there. So, um, it, it was sort of this whole combination of, a passion point that lots of people had with, a, um, uh, you know, a radio station that everyone really valued as a contributor to the community. Um, and so it was just kind of like, we've got to help these guys out. What can we do? Yeah. And what did you do? So the, um, yeah, the, the scenario that they'd normally go through is they would go and ask their um, listeners for, um, contributions, um, sign up, uh, and the problem with that is that um, predominantly their listeners um, at the time were um, people who were either at university um, or were sort of in the creative industries and not necessarily making a lot of money. Mm. Um, and the potential for them to actually hand over significant funds was not great right um so recognizing that it was kind of like what else can you do with those people um to help you and so rather than asking all of those people to contribute um a small amount of money um it was actually a case of going how can we get all of those people to use their creativity to ask one person for all the money um, and so that's where sort of Ask Richard was born and that it was like if we could convince Richard Branson who's, you know, started off with uh, a music label, has billions of dollars, you know, um, that would be the way. Um, and, and you can fix it all in one go. It's kind of like the total inverse of Barack, o, um, Barack Obama's like um, – 2007 campaign of like micro donations yes like, no let's go back to the big end of town and just get yeah. one big Whopper. f off check yeah yeah and it was richard branson because of his alignment um to the brand and how he started off when a record like selling record labels and yeah grew to with, with virgin records yeah. yeah so and and sort of recognizing as well that um you know he doesn't mind a bit of pr sure <laughs> yeah. so um, he likes a good news story, old mate Richard. <laughs> yeah, so it's sort of like let's have a bit of fun and and see if he bites. Yeah. So what what do you do? Like, well, you figured out that you want to tackle Richard Branson. How do you go about researching Richard Branson and figuring out what buttons to push to make him give you a million dollars? Well, that that wasn't our job. Our job was to provide the platform and um, some tools for. FBI's audience to go and do that for us. Right? Ah. So we weren't even trying to do that. We were just trying to work out how do we 
tap into um, that passion for the brand and the business um, that those listeners had and their natural in- inclination to to want to do creative things that would help support um, support FBI. So that was where really it was we put together a very simple website had a few logos and different um, images and things that they could um, download if they were like making signs or whatever and uh, then it was kind of like over to you guys go and like go and get the money right so the listeners of fbi were in a way the main channel for this campaign yeah that was the whole thing it was just like there's no point in asking for the the money Mm. ask them for their ideas see what they can do that's going to actually get the attention of somebody who's half the world away, doesn't even know who FBI is, yeah, um, and and is kind of sitting there going, you know, why would I ever give a million dollars away to a radio station? Yeah, because it's sort of a bit of a guilt trip for Richard Branson, but obviously it, it paid off in spades. Like, how did he respond to it? Um, it was um, it was really interesting because uh, we never asked any, never sought any sort of. Um, permission um, we just put it out there and um, uh, and then um, he through his uh, virgin brand um, team ended up uh, agreeing to do a call um, with the radio station so he called in um, one Monday morning or something and sort of explained um, that he'd heard about this and blah 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 and um, and, and true Richard Branson style, then flipped it on us and was kind of like, oh yeah, he he had a whole story about how um, some Aussie girl had swum to Necker Island and had shown up and with a security guy at his um, dinner one night, going, oh, I need to tell you about the FBI and blah blah blah. So it was just kind of like we're sitting there going, oh, okay, <laughs> <laughs> like all all of these things that happened. This this was like. Um, it was incredibly fun and incredibly stressful because every day was different and you didn't know how it was going to play out because um, we were just putting this out there. We didn't know what people were going to come up with. We didn't know how um, the Virgin brand were going to respond. We didn't know whether or not you know any of this was actually going to deliver against what we ultimately needed to achieve. So... Um, every day was um, sort of war room planning of going, okay, what's happened? What do we do next? Um, how do we actually move this on? Um, and uh, and it was, yeah, that that was the, the fun, fascinating bit. I feel like that war room planning kind of aspect has died off a little bit recently. It, it blew up a little bit again when social media was something that you could kind of hit back on immediately and and create a stir around tactically timed posts and real-time stuff. Um, Oreo dunk in the dark probably being the biggest example of that. Uh, is It's kind of a shame that that's, that's disappeared now. Do you see any opportunity to be able to pull off ideas like that in, this, in today's world and market? Um, surely. Surely there's more opportunity, right? I think the difficulty is in... Um, harnessing sufficient attention, which is a difficulty in for anyone, whether they be um, advertising, whether they be news content, whether they be a drama, is like there's just so many places that people can go 
that getting sufficient volume and attention on something to get the momentum that you need in order to kick something off in the first place um, is the biggest challenge now, I think, is why you don't see so many of those things anymore. Yeah, true that, true that. But Naked had a lot of ideas that kind of moved in this mold of thinking where it was something bombastic, something, you know, incredibly weird or absurd. Um, It was actually, when you think about it, it's kind of aligns to the Australian identity a little bit in that we are kind of, we we push up against convention a little bit and we're a bit irreverent and take the piss. Um, Can you tell us about what the minds were like back in the agency at that time and what your motivations were? Um, I think as a whole, as a group, we're motivated to um, take on the challenge of like uh, getting away from this formula um, and recognizing that, you know, when we started 2005 in Sydney, um, the, you know, we could see that, TV was well and truly on the decline, but no one was prepared to accept or admit it um, in the advertising world. Mm. Um, and it was one of those things where you were sort of going, okay, there's got to be other ways that we can actually reach people. How do we um, find compelling ways to engage them? Part of the um, beauty in, in what happened as a result is I think that in many cases... Um, we had clients who didn't have a lot of money. Mm. And so you had to think really hard huh. about how are you going to make the most of that money. And I think that one of the biggest issues with the advertising has, kind of back to our earlier discussion, is that when you've got budgets, it's really easy to be lazy um, mm-hmm. because you just kind of like, well, I know I can afford to spend this much on um, producing my creative and I know I can go and spend this much on uh, my media and I will reach this many people. But you're going to move them and compel them to do something. And, you know, occasionally there are fantastic pieces of creative that emotionally connect with everybody and really, like, um, are powerful and people remember them. But I would say that there are fewer and fewer of those and not because there aren't great creative ideas, but just because, again, the the sort of... Um, uh, the ability to reach enough people to create that momentum with with any piece of content is really hard. But the when you've got money and you just go and execute like, yeah, you have got money, then it's really easy for for you to be lazy. Wherein you've got no money, like this podcast, yeah, um, <laughs> less than no money, yeah. <laughs> and and you're trying to reach an audience. You got to think cleverly about how you're actually going to reach that audience and why they're going to listen to your podcast versus all those other thousands of podcasts. That's actually a good question. If it's why are people going to listen to this podcast? Yeah, I have no idea, but it's kind of like it's, it's double jeopardy for the marketer at the same time. Right. Cause they're, they've got this small budget and they're like, I can't, I can't risk it. I gotta, gotta hit like at least a couple people and, but they do have to risk it to be able to reach the well, audience they need so we we i think the brand attracted the types of brands that were prepared to do that mm, right? right and and you kind of knew pretty quickly walking in the door with naked what <laughs> what you could expect um and and one of the things that you know sort of was almost like the 
first um, first thing that was ever sort of said to a client in a credentials presentation or anything at, at Naked was like, everything communicates. Mm. And um, and the reason we would sort of highlight that to people is like, if everything communicates and we're a communication agency, we're going to have an opinion on everything. And so um, that sort of was our starting point to be able to go. So if you want to make your... Um, oh. If you want to make your... Um, uh, product more premium we're going to have um, a perspective on your pricing strategy yeah you know if you want to you know whatever it is it's kind of like we're going to come at you with that we're not going to hold back because that's like everything is a, a means of communicating something about your brand so those brands came in knowing full well that they were actually that's what they're after um, by and large when they were coming with those briefs it's kind of like I need something special. Um, I haven't got a lot of money. Uh, I'm prepared to take a risk if you can show me huh. that that risk is actually, you know, it can have some serious upside. So you guys were the hired guns for big ballsy work for the for the risk seeking little clients. ballsy work that worked its ass off. We <laughs> yeah. Uh, often we was we we would say it was more like. We were the last resort. Oh wow! Um, after um, others had been tried, you sure? And it was kind of like, okay, um, that still isn't working for us. We need to try something else. But now we've only got a fraction of what we had before. So, but after these campaigns performed really well and killed it, that must have flipped on its head, and they, every every uh, marketer with half a brain must have been seeking you guys out. Um, no, 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 no. <laughs> the, the agency would still be here. Yeah. Um, no, the, um, the challenge with that is that, um, you still got, you know, a lot of, um, brands who just, uh, really struggle to operate outside, um, the boundaries of what the corporate comms team, you know, will let them get through. And, mm. and more often than not, that's not, that's not a lot. Yeah. So, um, uh, so no, you weren't necessarily getting brands um, banging down the doors, sure. um, but you often what you had were um, you had particular marketers yeah. um, who were um, very strong in their opinion about how they thought that they needed to operate and sure. how or what the solution might sort of look like to their problem, mm. um, and they recognised that um, it was worth the effort on their um, part to actually fight to get us involved in that process um, to give them something that was going to be distinctly different from um, what they were getting elsewhere. Mm. But it wasn't just the small guys, was it? Because you did some pretty cool work for Coke. We, Yeah, we well, Coke was almost like the founding um, partner of... Um, of naked at the time and you know they they were very brave in taking naked on um as an agency but they saw a need in their um uh with their um portfolio at the time and um the fun bit about that was it sort of led to us being able to do a whole lot of different things that the coke as a business would never have really considered otherwise um, with big and small brands. Mm. Um, and I guess, you know, the the biggest of those was probably the Coke Zero launch, um, which, uh, you know, we were, 
I think the second market in the world to launch. Yeah. Um, and that um, that was coming off a pretty ineffective launch in America. Oh, really? What yeah. happened? Uh, America, they um, they launched the brand in a white can or a white bottle mm. um, label. Um, they were targeting 20-something males. Um, so they're trying to get 20-something males um, who have drunk Coke Red their whole life and are starting to not drink it um, because of sugar content uh, to drink this thing that looks more like Diet Coke than Diet Coke. Um, and it, and the positioning was around um, chill. And their, their launch... Um, communications was a remake of the classic I'd like to teach the world to sing Hmm. um, with um, uh, I'd like to teach the world to chill I'd like to teach the world to chill it wasn't was it it was (laughs) (laughs) they should be paying you the big bucks Max (laughs) well it was it was sung by um, G Love and Special Source I think so uh, you know you guys could Pair up and, and do it. Yeah, oh, we'll sure just get work. Bert and M6 on Fiverr to do it for 20 bucks. I'll be, I'll be special source, Vince, and you can be G-Love. No, I'm definitely outsourcing my uh, my shame and dignity on this one. That's for sure. So anyway, regardless, uh, Coke Zero flopped in the States because they tried to come out with this mm. kind of... Yeah, and, and so we, uh, you know, we got the brief um, and um, the client here... Um, recognize this pretty early themselves and and then and we sort of jumped on board and the working with the creative agency um at the time uh on it very closely we all sort of agreed that this was just never going to fly in australia because um that yeah because the, there was no way aussie guys can drink a, a white um can of coke um and the chill positioning was kind of like well australians are pretty chill already so i don't know what you're going to tell them to do that's more chill than how they are um can you imagine them launching that in new zealand (laughs) (laughs) and so yeah so it ended up being a um a case of actually going now that that needs to flip entirely on its head Hmm. um and you know so um uh adam ferrer is doing some great work on that around um embracing um, the dark side of the brand, um, and um, and so that's sort of where uh, the black came from. Was actually like what what was almost like the evil twin brother of Coke Red, um, and how might that brand operate? Um, so that you know that was its sort of um, the genesis of that whole brand and obviously that had to get dialed back because you can't be the evil evil coke evil coke the darth vader (laughs) of coke yeah but it was kind of that was a bit of the thinking it was like yeah what what would darth vader do um and so um yeah that sort of gave us the um a bit of freedom to sort of experiment and, and see where that would go and um, and we collectively, the whole, all the um, agency partners and um, and clients involved, I think, recognised that um, we were onto something. And then it was a case of like, how do you, how the hell do you sell this back to Atlanta and huh. convince them? Just backtracking um, just a little bit. So where did you go looking in Coke's existing brand sort of identity to find these dark, evil points that you could play up? Why why the black? Uh, it was less about. 
again, a, a less about the, the brand and the product um, in a way. Um, it's about the consumer. And like everyone's got a dark side, right? And, right. Um, and, and Coke is happiness. That is like what Coke is all about. And so what's, what, it was a case of like if all you've ever seen from Coke is happiness, is that actually for the consumer reflective of my life? Like yeah. not necessarily, right? So that's what we were really looking at is like these guys in their 20s, you know, um, they're going through a whole lot of stuff um, where they're discovering that the world isn't uh, what they potentially thought it was when they were coming out of school and um, and having to deal with uh, a whole lot of different things that they've never had to deal with before. And so it's actually more about how do we understand those guys better um, and find a way in which they can connect with um, this brand in a new way that makes sense to them um, at the same time as we're sort of like saying, and we're going to give you less sugar. So it's is kind of a, a really interesting um, way into it, sort of saying where we ended up with real taste and, and uh, no sugar, that that simple distillation was kind of all about you can really get into the nitty-gritty of um, their life, um, but still um, do it in a way that isn't... Um, yeah, uh, filled with all that sweetness. <laughs> yeah. God, so, the angsty Coke. Yeah. I love it. I actually want to buy it, like, right now. <laughs> it's definitely better than this cider, the pear cider that we're drinking, I feel. A bit of bit Jack and Coke. Yeah, I feel like that's lived on a bit as well through the launch of Coke Energy, which tastes like complete horseshit, but <laughs> it has that gritty vibe to it. MNC ain't pulling in that Coke account anytime soon. <laughs> yes. Complete horseshit. It's hard to get people to like something that is different to what they already love and have never tried before, right? Yeah. I mean, it is one of those things. There's still years of effort went into establishing that brand to convince people to go and trial it. And that was um, a huge part of the task involved was just like, how many samples can be delivered in a month like and try and you know i can't remember what the number was but it was ridiculous the the like the challenge of actually getting x number of people to trial this product in the first month um but it um it it was yeah because of the coordination that i think the amazing thing with um with that uh whole campaign experience was there's something like in the end about eight different agencies um working on the go-to-market of that um and i have never before and never since uh worked with so many different partners um and it been so easy hmm. uh, it, it was actually the most um joyous campaign to work on insofar as Everybody understood their role, what they were doing, why they're trying to do it, um, and and recognised the enormous challenge that was in front of them. That was kind of like, okay, everyone's really put their balls on the line here, going black. So we need to deliver this thing and make it work. What made it such a smooth collaborative process? Um, I think uh, the the fact that the clients were involved were so passionate and um and recognized the challenge that they were undertaking 
and that they had, you know, just try and imagine having to call Coca-Cola and Atlanta and tell them that they're wrong, right, about the the third biggest um, trademark that they've got or that, that they're trying to turn into the third biggest trademark that they've got. Mm. You guys got it wrong in America and we're going to get it right in Australia. Like, that's a really ballsy thing for anyone to to do mm. and um, and I think as soon as you take that on um, you've got a whole lot of commitment um, from everybody because you recognise that you've got to deliver um, you know the, the, and so coming all the way from them it, it just sort of that energy and that um, desire to make sure that this thing worked just fed through everybody as, as they were sort of brought on the journey and they understood why it all made sense. And mm. it was just kind of like, this makes sense. I get where you're going. I understand the role that we need to play within that now and what our metrics are that we're going to be held accountable to in terms of that delivery. Did Atlanta end up changing their strategy based on the success of the Coke Zero launch here in Oz? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, you go anywhere in the world now and there's Coke Zero in a black can. Huh. Yeah. Um, they they actually recognised that um, the work that we did here in establishing that made sense. It had, it had connected, um, and they chose to take that strategy to roll out in um, their markets progressively um, going forward. I think you know the Europe was sort of the next destination for it, and it was just kind of like it was really interesting because I think that. Um, six months later or so the the following summer um i went over there and uh and i was in trafalgar square and there was coke zero getting sampled the way i was getting sampled in australia went into um into berlin and there were um posters in the subway that were effectively the same um, sort of uh, situations and and taglines and gags and things that we'd used in Australia. Yeah. So um, they they just took it and went with it. And um, I don't know at what point they switched it over in the US, but uh, you know, no one would have noticed. That yeah. The, the white can was gone. That must be bloody satisfying to go somewhere else in the world and see your work. Well, it, yeah. I mean, it, it, it's. Um, I think it's. Um, pretty rewarding for anyone who was ever involved in that because it was such a massive, massive project. So many people involved. Um, and yeah, that you're sort of like, okay, all of a sudden you've actually effectively helped to create one of the, you know, three parts of the, um, the Coke, um, main Coke brand. Even though that's since been dialed back and, you know, and now that they're sort of moving back to more just a singular red brand. But um, for a good 10 years there, um, it was kind of like, yeah, you could just walk into any any shop anywhere in the world and be like, huh. I did, that's me. That's me on that can right there. I did that. That was brilliant. I don't like, but... Not all the projects were, were so big. I mean, the last project that we really wanted to delve into was one that you probably didn't work on um, quite as directly, but uh, 
the art series campaign that everyone knows steal Banksy, right? Can you tell yep. us kind of how that was floating around in the naked offices at the time and where people were kind of getting their thinking from on that one? Um, it Well, that one literally kind of floated, um, floated in an email um, where, you know, one of those things, everyone talks about a great idea can come from anywhere, um, but how often is that actually given uh, the opportunity to um, to actually exist? Uh, I think, you know, agencies, whether they be um, client teams, whether they be strategists, whether they be creatives, whatever, everyone's pretty protective about stuff and, um, and sharing the opportunity for people to contribute uh, to get to a solution. Um, and, and often there's just, you know, there's time and, um, resources and and you can't get more people to look at it. Um, and in this case it was, uh, an all staff email that just said, here's the brief. Um, a very short brief, a a matter of a a couple of sentences was like, we need to get more people to spend time in the art series hotels during this period, blah, 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 blah. Um, tell us your ideas. And I think it was about an hour later um, that uh, John O'Key, who was a strategist um, and had nothing to do with working on Art Series Hotel, was, you know, probably had never heard of them <laughs> until that email um, came up with the, the Steel Banksy concept. How do you go about organizing something like Steel Banksy? I mean, did people have to actually go out there and wait on a street corner to watch this hooded figure emerge and start painting something? Or did they have to go through a talent agent? Or no. uh, What we're asking is, can you get us in touch with Banksy? And uh, how, how did that work? How did the actual execution of all of that stuff work? Uh, the execution... Um was a case of purchasing um, a couple of Banksy artworks. Um, and then um, the whole idea was you come and spend a night at um, one of the art series hotels. Um, the artwork's on display. If you can get the artwork out without being noticed, then you get to keep the artwork. And I think the the artwork was valued about 20 grand or something. So, you know, it wasn't, yeah. wasn't um, uh, sort of to be ignored and... Um, there was a whole lot of things that went on very quickly. Like people were um, trying lots of different stuff. There, there were. Um, what were the security measures put in place? Well, there put- were there were cameras found. Like this, I can't remember what year it was, but you know, cameras were a um, couple you know, hundred bucks a piece. Well, yeah, at probably. Least. And and we're talking about like a you know maybe a five cent ten cent sort of size oh wow (laughs) yeah somebody had placed in reception so that they could actually watch reception and see when the opportunity um existed so there were you know it had already grabbed sufficient attention that um people were definitely keen and involved and again it was one of those things where it's like you're giving consumers something to do yeah right and something to do that um that they could really relate to and see some joy and fun in. We're inviting them to break the law, you know, in a way. And um, and so um, that is just like, who else is going to get me that opportunity? Yes, I'm going to go and book a night to do that. If I can book it, i got to book a hotel room somewhere. I may as well book it there. 
But even the earned media that comes off that is absolutely insane, right? I mean, the, the headlines were everywhere. I remember reading about it. I had no idea that the advertising industry even existed at the time and people were talking about that campaign. Yeah, well, obviously, again, you're, you're tapping into um, pop culture. You're um, benefiting from Banksy's brand um, and the fact that he has behaved in this sort of manner um, for many years before and, and is, you know, at that point was really sort of at his zenith in terms of um, his work. Um, and, uh, and you're leveraging that to benefit your brand. Um, and so, yeah, it's going to grab attention. And did someone steal Banksy? Yeah. Um, so the the scenario was uh, that um, there's actually a uh, PR agency. Um, one of the girls from there called up and said that she was from Naked and she was coming to collect the um, artwork to move it to one of the other hotels. Wow. And so she had insider knowledge then. She knew about Naked Communications. Well, she knew, yeah. She, but I mean, if you if you looked around, it wouldn't have been too hard to work out um, who, where it had come from. Um, and yeah, she just, so she effectively walked in <laughs> and just took it, um, was handed it. And, um, the, the funny, the really funny bit is that she never thought it was going to happen. And so there's video footage of her in the car park, um, freaking out because she's like, how, what the hell do I do now? Like, she's sort of like, didn't actually think she had, was going to have to get it out of there. So she had no out plan. There was no car there for her. Ended up running up the car park and jumping in a taxi. And, uh, <laughs> the perfect crime. <laughs> yeah, the perfect crime, exactly, yeah. And she she, she uh, shopped it? She pawned it off for, for the cash or did I, you just I reward her? I have no idea. It might be sitting ah. on her mantelpiece. I don't know. Well, I hope it is. I yeah. hope she enjoys that for the rest of her life. I mean, what a brilliant thing to have. Well, speaking of steals and points and rebounds, how'd you go with the NBL brief? So in order to um, make this podcast feel authentic, I think whilst we talk about the NBL um, and particularly it's, um, you know, the retro NBL of the 80s and 90s, we should record everything in mono. That is just a brilliant idea. Now it's time to put your talents to the test. Now it's time to give a scenario to our guests. So what would be a strategy? Break it down. Let's see how you do it. Problem insight, strategy, and solution. Woo! First, why the fuck? After winning their last five games, the Eastside Melbourne Spectres have their sights set on second spot as they take on Adelaide... Most popular for parasitically thriving off the fame of Jordan and co. during the height of the NBA 90s, the National Basketball League is Australia's favourite sporting joke. With a feeder system that basically operates like a stork stealing the young from the cribs of NBA stars of old, ask someone about contemporary players like Jamal Randall or the performance of the Illawarra Hawks, and it's extremely likely you'll get crickets. Now sure, there are old boys like Gazy, Longley and Mills who might still get cheers and pub trivia at the old Cherry Book Hotel, but the problem is clear. Our problem? No one could give two shits about the NBL. As always, for this segment, we will ask our guest to respond in the son of a pitch, taking the piss format. That's problem, insight, strategy and solution. 
I know that John, you are a big NBA fan. Is that true? Uh, I'm an NBA fan. Now, as a Kiwi, I, I have a soft spot for OKC just because of Stephen Adams. Yeah. Um, but growing up, I was a, I was a Lakers fan. No, well, we don't have the NBA for you today, <laughs> but we have a league which is almost as good. The NBL, the Australian Basketball League. Yeah, it was it was an interesting <laughs> challenge. Uh, you know, officially you put the task as find a way to give uh, get people to give two shits about the um, NBL, um, and then you put these ridiculous like <laughs> metrics around it about like increasing attendance by fifty percent, uh, and then. Uh, being able to find five out of ten people surveyed at random in suburban locations in each state who can provide an anecdote about five current players from separate teams in the MBL, <laughs> not including Andrew Bogut. <laughs> are you saying these are not legitimate metrics? I, I think it's a, a legitimate metric. I just don't think, outside of maybe um, the AFL in um, in a Melbourne that you'd actually be able to achieve that for any sport in Australia. I think that's that's a bit tough. So I'm not. I'm going to say right now. I don't think um, my strategy is going to deliver against that. So can we say that you're going to challenge the brief? Then is that what we're we're going to expect from this 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 uh, submission you're making? Well, like all clients, I think your expectations are way beyond what you're actually <laughs> yeah, able to deliver. To manage again. our expectations. All right. So so your. Um, your structure, the taking the piss structure, right? The problem definition mm. or redefinition. Um, I think um, the way I would articulate that back to you in terms of the problem is how do you get people to think about the current MBL experience the way that they like to think about the nostalgic memory of um, the 1980s and 90s um, MBL experience, right? That's what you're actually asking. How do you make people care about it um, like they used to care about it. So if if we let's start with the current scenario, right? Um, in terms of the environment which the MBL has to operate within. So um, as you said, I'm, I'm a bit of a NBA fan. Um, you know, I uh, was um, uh, pretty happy when I um, could uh, start watching some of the. NBA streaming um, through a streaming service, not the NBA service, but a um, KO Sports. I was like, oh, great, that's an easy access for me. Um, but um, the the thing that I find amazing about it is that there is just endless NBA content, right? Mm. You Honestly, you could spend your entire waking life <laughs> consuming NBA content mm. and never have a dull or empty moment like this. So Fox Sports and KO, you've got NBA's own online pass, so you can watch every game you ever want to watch when you want to watch it. Um, and you know, and I, I've definitely worked with people in the advertising industry who, um, uh, with their two screens on a Friday afternoon, oh, seem yeah. to be able to operate with one, yeah, one screen doing one thing and a live stream on the other. Um, uh, shout out to um, a small uh, accountant that I used to work with um, back in the day. She knows who she is. Um, <laughs> you've got all the website content that you want to consume. You've got um, Instagram feeds where, like, uh, you know, I forget Twitter. Like, I sit on Instagram and I can see um, plays being uploaded to Instagram, which I've literally just watched live on the stream within minutes. Um, you know, so it's all, it's kind of hard to not see the game even if you're um you're trying to and then like 
you've got sports betting, you've got um, esports, and you know one of the most popular um, uh, annual games being um, NBA. Um, so, like, there's just so much, so much NBA content that you can actually um, tap into, uh, and that's that's pretty challenging if you're um, going to compete with that. Right, so that is difficult to start with for the NBL. On the plus side, locally, um, participation, and not to go too deep into numbers, but participation numbers are up, right? Kids are playing more and more basketball. In the past 15 mm. years, basketball has surpassed cricket, league, and tennis to become the fourth, fourth most um, uh, participated, organised participated sports activity for kids up to the age of 13, right? So that a third of the Australian um, uh, youth population are playing basketball. That's really good numbers. Um, the problem is when you get old, obviously, your knees give out on you and um, you just can't play anymore, um, uh, in my experience. But, um, uh, you further I wasn't out. going to say that. Well, yeah. or you move further out to the three-point line. Well, you as just, you get older, you know, as a as a uh, Caucasian male, you find that your um, ability to jump decreases even more mm. and more. Um, so uh, yeah, so um, there's there's people who like the game, right? Yeah. Um, and uh, the other thing is that if you actually look at some of the numbers, like Australian um, sports attendance. For a population of 25 million is pretty amazing. Like the the actual average numbers attending our big sporting leagues are right up there. Um, and believe it or not, the NBL is the third largest um, basketball league in the world for attendance. Wow. <laughs> Followed by wow. who? Like, uh, I mean, who, who precedes them other than the NBA? Well, the NBA, I, I think that's professional leagues. Um, it excludes it. Yeah. the NCAA. Um, so, uh, NBA and the Euro League um, mm. as a whole. Anyway, I read that somewhere in preparation for this in my three hours that I looked up stuff. Um, so, um, I think we were too hard on the NBL in our briefings. It sounds like we're doing, we're doing fine. Well, you know, uh, what I take out of that is that, you know, there's an appetite for people to consume basketball content, um, although generally that's the NBA. Um, you've got uh, participation, which is growing um, at a youth level. So there's the opportunity that you can tap into that audience. Um, and, you know, um, kids kids look up and see somebody who's uh, six foot eight and they're six foot eight. They don't know if they're in the NBA or the NBL. That doesn't make as big a difference. They're just like twice as big as them and really, really good. So there's still that opportunity to tap into that sort of hero worship there. Um as you sort of pointed out in the brief, there's there's a bit of adult nostalgia that you can tap into in terms of the glory days, um, and uh, and we know that people in Australia love to go to sport. So I think there's some good foundations in terms of what the NBL can actually work off. But the elephant in the room, um, which is kind of where I was talking about the. Uh, the, the problem definition is that the expectation is that the MBL should be like it used to be. Yeah. And, and that's difficult. Yeah. What, what's, what, what is it missing? Well, if we go back to the time that you're talking about, 
when I think you boys were actually in nappies, right? <laughs> yeah, I think I was, I was in year five or something like that. It was yeah, yeah, that. a long time ago. Yeah. Um, <laughs> if you go back to the 80s like, and, and when basketball really took off, it, it took off because of like Magic and Bird mm. Um, mm. Um, and before Magic Bird um, and, um, and then Jordan coming along and how those rivalries really just built um, an amazing product. Uh, and they were amazing athletes who totally changed the way in which the game was played. Um, and as that was happening at the same time, you had this um, other incredible um, uh, emergence of hip-hop culture, mm-hmm. which was very closely associated with basketball. And, um, and those two things working together was actually an amazingly powerful sort of cultural energy that swept through the late 80s and into the 90s, right? And, um, uh, you know, as, as a teenager in Auckland, um, who it was so far from that world, but, like, we all wore, you know, starter jackets and, and baseball caps, and, you know, and if anyone actually owned a pair of Air Jordans, that was kind of like, wow. Like, that was, that was pretty cool. So... That all of that stuff pushed that into um, uh, into our sort of cultural reference point where we just like the NBA is something cool and basketball is something cool. That I guess the Australian context, as I understand it at the time, is that um, the NBA was able to benefit from a lot of that. Um, insofar as uh, you had very little NBA coverage, um, so. Uh, you might have about one game a week or so that was actually on TV on your three or four TV stations, right? Pay TV was pretty new. Um, Newspapers would have an occasional story, probably towards the playoffs. Um, Otherwise, if you wanted to actually know who won a game, you had to look into the results section uh, in in the sports section, which is in like four font, in order to understand who actually played and won in the past, you know, two days, uh, uh, there was no internet, so there was no access, and even just like practically to go to America and see it was very expensive, right? No flights were crazy expensive to go to the states then, so you didn't have as much travel. So if you think about it, the NBA didn't exist. In Australia, it it's was a mythos. A, it was a, it was a, yeah, it was a, a, a sort of brand that existed, but the actual experience was somewhat um, limited in terms of what people could tap into on a regular basis. So, you had that where there's this desire and this interest coming out of that sort of cultural energy, but at the same time, um, no way of partaking in that. So, how do you partake in it? The MBL. And the NBL was able to benefit from the fact that at the time they didn't have a lot of competition either because um, Friday night rolls around and you want to go and watch some sport. There's no footy on. Footy happens on Saturday and Sunday. So Friday night was the NBLs. And from a corporate entertainment perspective, like the opportunity to go somewhere where it's always dry, where it's easy to get drinks, where you know you have this amazing energy from a um, from a crowd within a within a building um, that 
you could just ramp up. Um, that was an awesome experience, right? And for particularly for people who had not seen that before. So um, it was kind of like in a very fortunate position to be able to um, benefit from what was happening globally uh, in order to actually build their brand locally. Awesome. So That's, I feel like we got to let that sit because that is probably one of the most in-depth kind of explanations of, the, of a problem we've had on this podcast on board. so far. I'm on board for the story. So I guess the challenge, right, is that back to your brief is like need to stop trying to convince people that the MBL should be what it was because it never will or can be. It just can't be. The NBA won, right? The NBA is basketball. If you want basketball, that's what it is, with the possible exception of the NCAA tournaments, right? But if we're talking about how do we get to a solution and what's the, sorry, strategy before solution? <laughs> well, I don't know. If you want to flip it, that's that's up to yeah. you. I, I would... I would uh, I would suggest that you use the Kevin Durant approach and uh, if you can't beat him, join him. So um, I think that you've sort of talked about um, in your brief that the league being a potential like feeder for um, the NBA, um, the league needs to be the NBA. And so, um, you know, there, there have been moments where... Uh, the NBL has been able to um, have an impact in that market, right? And primarily through um, some Australian talent. But um, are you familiar with Terence Ferguson? I am not. I am not either. I thought you, uh, well, you know, I thought you might have done your research on this brief. But anyway, Terence Ferguson, right? Blame the NBL. Terence, <laughs> Terence Ferguson uh, was a guy coming out of high school. Um, and, uh, and he wanted to go to the NBA, um, but really he, I mean, if you look at his wiki, it doesn't talk about this, but he probably didn't have the grades, right? So in order to get into college, he has to have the grades and then be able to do his, um, his one year before he can, uh, elect for the draft. Uh, so what does he do? He comes and plays for the Adelaide 76ers and, um, and now uh, you know, after a season with the Adelaide 76ers, he gets goes into the draft. He gets picked up by OKC, and um, and if you look at your Instagram uh, and the Bleach Report in the past couple of weeks, he does this amazing windmill dunk that you're just like, oh my god, I can't believe somebody did that in the game. Like he is in the NBA, right? He is talent and he is playing, and and he wouldn't have been able to get there without an opportunity to bridge high school to the draft. And for most kids, it is college, but not for everyone. And um, and the to their credit, the MBL acknowledged this, and they um, they created a, a thing they call the Next Steps program, which is basically like formalizing what um, Terence Ferguson went through, where teams can pick up a um, an American player and effectively help them make that um, transition. Uh, the problem with that 
is that um, the NBA liked it so much that they kind of went, we're going to just like bump up the salaries within the G League, which is their feeder program, in order to kind of allow um, guys to do it through their league. Um, so getting to the solution is that, um, yeah, the, I think the NBL needs to effectively sell the farm to the NBA and that there's no like little tweaks of you're allowed to have one player um, who comes in on that sort of next step program. It's like at least half the team, right? Because why am I going to go and watch it? Otherwise it's like, if, but if I can go and watch the guys who are going to be the superstars in the future, um, then um, that starts to be compelling. And if you actually think about then how we might you go about structuring it, then it gets um, kind of interesting. So in the same way that um, you know football teams have feeders and the uh, the US, you know, the NBL have their minor leagues and they all own teams that play in little towns and that sort of thing is like um, if the NBL represented that for Australia and Asia and for a portion of um, American uh, American players that they could come and play here um, and actually use that as a means to um, transition into the draft and into the um, NBA, then you might get somewhere. So I kind of think if you went sell the clubs, let the you know the Mark Cubans of the world who how much did it Mark cost Mark Cuban to buy an Australian NBL club? Oh, I'm sure he could just click his fingers, empty his pockets at the end of the day, and there's like yeah. two of them. Yeah. So it's, it's just like, um, you know, if there was a relationship where you effectively are selling the league to the NBA and you're selling clubs to the other, to the actual club owners, um, not only can you start to look at how you make it um, survive, but how um, actually you need more clubs because there's a lot of clubs in the NBA who potentially want to be part of a program where they can if not just... Um, you know, tap into talent, but they can actually start to groom the talent. Right? If if your talent goes into a college program, you're kind of fighting with everybody else. But if you have rights as a result of having ownership of a club that gives you first dibs in some way, shape or form to um, draft players out of your system, then they're already trained in your system. So they're much more effective in terms of if you have um, that opportunity to bring them into your team, how quickly you can get them up to speed, if you have injuries, how you can transfer them through that process. Um, and uh, and then, yeah, it's kind of like uh, it is just um, being part of the NBA. And to the point, it's like sell the rights to the NBL as part of the NBA package that, um, you know, you're selling back to Australia. How do you think NBL owners are going to respond to this strategy, especially when we package this up and uh, put it out online? Um, you know, you didn't ask me to address all the stakeholders. Uh, but, but I guess, yeah, as I said, Mark Cuban's got a lot of money. Um, so I guess it depends on whether they're in it for the passion or the... Uh, or the cashing. Or the cashing, yeah. Um, but... Um, you know, I'm sure that you, they they could come to an arrangement of some way, shape, or form. Yeah, I love it. So, effectively, you want to make the NBL the best G League program in the world. A, a different G G League program. A different. G League right. Program. I think um, 
you know that there's some benefits to um, potentially how the uh, MBL could work insofar as um, whether you want to structure the season so it's in the off season for the NBA or so that um, they're actually able to sort of plan in terms of how they're using that as their summer program, bringing in younger players um, who are potentially coming out of college before they're going into the um, NBA system. Um, you could, um, yeah, you could j- just think about it in terms of different ways because you've got full ownership um, in terms of um, the opportunity there. Would you keep the teams that kind of exist at the moment and the brands of the different teams that exist here? Uh, I don't see why not. I think you know there's a lot of there's a lot of fans who who are still very loyal to some of those um, some of those brands and you know like not all not all <laughs> it kind of sounds like we're getting really down on the NBL, but there's a lot of very positive stuff in the NBL, right? Like I know. From um, my, uh, you know, I, I loosely associate myself, I suppose, with the Breakers coming from Auckland. And um, where the Breakers are based in Auckland, um, they and um, Perth have been incredibly successful in the past decade, right? I can't remember, eight championships or something between them. Um, but success breeds a certain like um level of success as well and so the three uh boy big boys colleges around where the breakers are based in auckland are now the three best basketball colleges in the country and and i went to one of those schools and didn't even have a basketball program back then and they're the number one team in the country now and so i think that you know there's still a lot of value in the clubs, the people who are very passionate about those clubs, the brands that they represent, I don't think, you know, there's any point in calling, um, you know, the, the, the OKC breakers. Like that, that's not going to work even with, like, Stephen Adams' connection. It's just like you, you still need to be true and loyal to where you're from. So even though you merge, you keep the soul? Um think most people like to keep their soul i mean i think i've already okay, i've already i've already proposed selling enough to the devil that if there's any soul left you should probably hang on to it yeah, yeah definitely so just to play devil's advocate on your strategy i'm a if i'm a in the closet sydney kings fan um um what how is how um how are other fans going to perceive it that a bunch of one and duns are going to come in to their team, stir up the locker room, cause a cause a bit of a, a craze. Do you think that's going to hurt the product that inevitably comes onto the floor? Um, so, back to your um, task at the beginning, like sure. of getting people to actually be able to talk about any of the NBL players. Can they talk about them now? Yeah, I think so. Nah, no way. Wait, sorry, you said, are they going to talk about them now? No, I'm saying... Can they talk can, about can them right your, now? Your task, oh, no. yeah, your metric. Yeah, right? so this is going to cause drama. So, uh, what I'm saying is that I don't think you're losing anything in that mm. scenario. Like, um, if you're able to raise the standard of the product by virtue of the talent that you're um, able to access, if you're... Um, if the, um, the funds that are going into that team 
to develop the talent that the team has um, improves the product. Mm-hmm. Like all of those things start to actually add up into a reason why, you know what, I for two years um, I got to see the equivalent of Kevin Durant when he was um, 18 or 19, right? It's like, well, he was still would have been pretty amazing at 18 and 19. Yeah. So, um, you know, you're still, if you're improving the product, like then, um, yeah, there's a certain element that, uh, of kind of like the deal that you're doing with the fan in that process, which is that you're not going to necessarily have that person to cheer for for the next five to 10 years mm-hmm. here. But if you have a connection with a team that is actually who owns you um, so that rather than, you know, you're randomly going, well, you know what, LeBron transferred from Cleveland to the Lakers, so I'm now a Lakers fan instead of a Cavs fan. Like, actually, if that, um, if you've got a, a loyalty to a particular club that comes through your club, then um, you, you can still see that guy, you can still cheer for that guy and you still feel like you're part of um, his success and the club's success um, that they're potentially going to achieve over there. Yeah, and from the players, it's a, it's a great deal too. They actually get paid well, instead of in the NCAA system where you know, they, they work for free yeah. and all their rights are sold. <laughs> True. Um, uh, they get to come to the beautiful country that is Australia. Yep. Hopefully they don't get put into uh, Brisbane. Oh, that's a low blow, Brisbane. Or Cairns. Cut that one. <laughs> Imagine ending up in the Cairns Taipans and coming yeah. from like New York or yeah. somewhere like the Cairns, that. The Cairns Taipans may have a little bit more trouble recruiting talent. but <laughs> um, No, it, it seems like they'd get better learning and development. They get paid. They get to live in a beautiful location. And then they're ready to make that jump when it happens. And the fans can still get stay connected because everything's, every, as you were saying, everything's on Instagram and everything's shareable and you still get that that connection to the team. You just don't get to watch them at the games. So I guess, where does it grow up and, and, and what does it become after 10 years or so or 20 years or so? Does it still remain that exact same system or do you actually get an NBA product in and of its own? No. Just, just remains the <laughs> back, same. Back to the earlier point, the NBA is basketball, right? Yeah. So, um, I don't think you're, it, it's, you know, if you use analogies of other sports, it's like, um, you know, all the various Formula sports that feed, you know, single-seater sports that feed into Formula One. Formula One is Formula One. And it's like the pinnacle. And that's what players are um, striving for. It's what the fans want. You know, it's like, and that is the same thing with the NBA. The NBA is the pinnacle. Um, <clears throat> you could argue that, you know, various football leagues and um in Europe are the pinnacle, whether it's the EPL, the Liga or whatever. But the pinnacle of that is a Champions League, right? There is, there's, there's always the top that the players are striving for, that the fans want their teams to be part of, that they want to know that they're the best of the very best. Um, it's not going to happen in Australia. Got it. Know what you do and do it well. That was epic. Thank you, John. Thank you, John. Yeah, um, that's actually mind-blowing and, and I'd don't even know if we if we knew what this brief was gonna gonna become when we wrote it so i think this is what the nbl actually needs to do i think they need to contact cuban <laughs> so we'll put that strat into a little five page powerpoint deck release it with the pod and we'll see and we'll tag the nbl in it and uh, see what happens 
Let's see. I kind of just gave it all to them for free, though, right? This is the scam that is the Son of a Pitch podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much, John, for coming on board. I I hope you've enjoyed this process. It's been a pleasure. Um, It's been an interesting experience. And uh, if I'd known that you're going to drill me on my past so much, I would have made my LinkedIn profile much more colourful. (laughs) Well, we'll see what, what it looks like next week. You have been listening to a Son of a Pitch podcast. My name is Vince. And my name is Max. And we're both planners living in Sydney, Australia. A big thanks to Helga Diamond and Miami Ad School for supporting the show. And if you want to get that $100 fee waived for Miami Ad School, please drop us a line at podcastsoap at gmail.com. That's podcastsoap at gmail.com. See you next time. Bye. Yeah, uh, son of a pitch. Yeah, this is something you don't want to miss. Uh-huh. Interviews with creatives and the best strategists. All the top in Australia who steady making moves. Uh-huh. The podcast that puts you right in the pitch room. Yeah, professionals in this market. Uh, time to get it started. Uh, give us some complex problems. So let's see how you can solve it. Tune in with some Aussies. I bet you can't resist. Get, get, get it hype. This is son of a pitch.